Article 13, The Invisible Cosmic World. Demons, Devils, Fallen Angels, and That Old Serpent by Pastor Dan Gaiman. Every word of this Bible study is found in Scripture except for the word cosmic. This study is open for review and correction. I would be happy to print your replies, providing they follow the customary points of Bible hermeneutics. The word cosmic relates to the universe. Let's consider the invisible cosmic world. We live in the physical world, a reality that we can see, hear, touch, taste, and even feel. Since we live and exercise our physical senses in this world, this is the reality with which we finite beings are familiar with. However, just because we can't see, smell, hear, or touch something doesn't mean that something is not real. For just as we have a literal cosmic world, there also exists a metaphysical world related to the transcendent full of realities beyond our five senses. The metaphysical world we can understand only through our God consciousness. Most believers readily acknowledge the metaphysical world, a world we cannot see. Our Creator God declared in Psalm 115 verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. We readily understand the first heaven, for it encompasses the atmosphere and is where all our weather occurs. Learning about the first heaven alone is amazing and encompasses a lifetime. The second heaven may seem quite a bit more remote. It's the planetary heaven, where God suspended the sun, moon, stars, and our planets. Our knowledge of the second heaven may never be full, but it sure captures our imaginations. Who hasn't dreamed of or been amazed by space travel? Since most of the second heaven is far beyond the reach of any rocket man could design, the second heaven has barely been impacted by modern technology. The third heaven is where God dwells with the holy angels in their various orders and with all the redeemed saints that we sometimes call the church triumphant. These redeemed souls are dwelling in their celestial bodies awaiting the resurrection of their physical body at the second coming. These redeemed souls are with Christ and will return with him. Most of what we know about the third heaven is found in Isaiah 6, 2 Corinthians 12, the book of Revelation, and other passages in Scripture. Genesis 5.24 informs us that at the age of 365, Enoch was translated in the third heaven. For God took him there. 2 Kings 2 verse 11 informs us that Elijah was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire pulled by horses and also was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. 2 Kings 6 verse 8 through 17 records the event where the king of Syria was after the prophet Elisha. Elisha's servant was alarmed that he and his master Elisha would be captured. When Elisha prayed that the eyes of his servant would be opened, Behold, he saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Of course, we know that God sent them from the invisible world. Jesus took the apostles Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain apart from the others. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. To their utter amazement, both Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and were transfigured with him. Matthew 17 verse 1 through 13 describes this scene. Their faces shined as bright as the sun, and at the sight of them the apostles fell on their faces in fear. In this instance, 
the transcendent invisible cosmic world merged with the physical world in which the apostles lived. The book of Revelation describes the metaphysical world as well as events occurring in the invisible heavens. From Revelation 4.1 to 11.1, John is in the spirit, observing events in heaven and on earth. From Revelation 11.1 to 11.12, John is in Jerusalem, observing the two witnesses. From 11.13 to the end of this prophecy, John is in the invisible, transcendent heavens, observing and recording things in heaven and upon earth. The heavens and eternity, where God dwells, should fill us with humility, awe, and wonder. Also note that within this realm is a world of darkness, where demons, devils, fallen angels, and that old serpent called the devil and Satan dwell. That old serpent called the devil and Satan is also known by a variety of other names, as we shall see later. Without diving deep right now, consider this basic information on the spirit world of fallen angels, devils, demons, demonic influence, as well as demonic possession. The realm of spiritual darkness includes witchcraft, worship of idols, and necromancy, which God condemns, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9-13. In this lesson, we first need to understand that in the beginning, God created the universe and all things therein in a perfect condition. Secondly, we need to discover the origin of sin. How and under what conditions did sin enter into the universe? Who was the first sinner? And how did God's perfect world, altogether absent from sin originally, ever become sinful? Thirdly, we need to understand how sin affected Adam kind. One of the most important points to remember in any examination of the world of spiritual darkness, where demons, devils, fallen angels, and Satan are under study, is this. In the beginning, God created a perfect world, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Everything that God created was good. It was a perfect creation. Genesis 2.1 declares this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. This was a finished creation. There was no new energy or matter created after the sixth day. Moreover, this did include all the angels. The word host in Genesis 2.1 is a company or multitude of men or of angels. Luke 2.13 and 14 converts, confirms this, and it does include angels. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Acts 7.42 also speaks of the host of heaven. The angels consisted of a great host. Revelation 5.11 declares this, And I behold and heard voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. These angels were all created without sin in a fixed number. Angels are masculine in gender and do not reproduce. The only way angels can reproduce is to transform themselves into human form and mate with women as they did before the Genesis flood in Genesis 6. The first sinner and sin's entry into the universe. How would sin, the transgression against God and his law, arrive in a perfect universe? This is a reasonable question for which God's word provides the answer. 
In the perfect realm of heaven, God had created a vast array of angels with different orders and ranks that also included an order of archangels, which exist at the top of angelic hierarchy. Bible students are familiar with the archangel Michael and Gabriel. Seven archangels are counted in scripture and named in extra-biblical literature. The original reigning archangel, the chief angel in charge of all the other angels, was the archangel Lucifer. Crucial to note is this. Sin entered the universe when Lucifer, later identified as the old serpent called the devil and Satan, rebelled against God and led a rebellion of angels in the third heaven. 1 John 3 verse 8 declares that the devil, whom we know as Satan, sinned from the beginning. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Apostle John also confirms that Satan sinned from the beginning. The archangel Lucifer, also called Satan, the devil, and the serpent, was also called the god of this world by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The Apostle John called him the prince of the world, and Peter called him a roaring lion. The book of Revelation 12, verse 1 through 17, is the scene of epic proportions in the cosmic transcendent world where God, together with the redeemed through the ages, dwells with the angels who kept their first estate. In contrast to the angels that left their first estate in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6. There came a day when Lucifer, the chief archangel, rebelled against his creator God and managed to draw a third of the angels with him, exalted in his own self-importance and pride. Lucifer challenged God's divine authority. Revelations 12, verse 3 and 4 summarizes Satan's rebellion as he led a third of the angels in his rebellious war in heaven against the throne of the Most High God. Revelations 12, verse 7 through 9 describes in some detail this warfare in heaven. When the dragon, that old serpent of Genesis 3, 1, invaded heaven and led his rebellion against God. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out, and his angels with him. Important to understand is that in this cosmic heavenly realm, ongoing conflicts exist because angels, always under a test, occasionally rebel. When they do, God casts them from heaven. Therefore, these same verses in Revelation 12, 7, and 9 may be addressing an assault against God at the end of history. Revelation 12.10 appears to confirm this. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In fact, Job 1 and 2 actually portray a scene where Satan appears among the angels, called the sons of God, and make accusations against Job, the servant of God. Cosmic warfare was underway in heaven as it is on earth, and both rebellious and faithful angels are very much involved in this ongoing war. Jesus Christ made a significant statement in Luke 10 verse 18. I beheld Satan as lightning 
fall from heaven. Ponder this statement. What did Jesus see? He saw the chief archangel cast from heaven. When did Jesus behold this event? One of the strongest clues comes from the inspired words of Isaiah 14. This prophetic word focuses on Jacob and the people of Israel in the beginning, giving assurance to all believers that our sovereign God will yet save his people and restore them to his messianic kingdom as Jehovah God destined. Beginning in Isaiah 14 verse 9, we see an abrupt change from Jacob Israel to the subject of hell and the dead confined in this dungeon of doom and despair. Beginning in verse 12, scripture suddenly erupts with this statement. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell and to the sides of the pit. Who is Lucifer? Most people would answer Satan. Even non-Christians seem to know that Lucifer is simply another term for that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Phraseology that Jesus used in Revelation 12, 9 and 22 asked the Luciferians who worship Lucifer as a being of great light, or asked the Satanists who call Lucifer their master. Among the English-speaking world, it is commonly accepted that Lucifer is synonymous with Satan. Lucifer means light-bearing one and comes from Latin. These early church fathers used the name Lucifer. Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, and others, in effect, making this Latin word a title for Satan. John Milton popularized Lucifer as a proper name for Satan in his work, Paradise Lost. The translators of the authorized King James Bible did not make a mistake. Lucifer is found in Isaiah 14, verse 12. Any attempt to appropriate the term day star or morning star to anyone beyond Jesus Christ is erroneous. Christ is called the day star in 2 Peter 1, 19, and the bright and morning star in Revelation 22.16. Any biblical translation that says day star or morning star or star of the morning in Isaiah 14.12 brings confusion into the text. There is no question that the attempt to be co-equal with God marks the full manifestation of Satan's pride. Satan, the chief archangel, is the ultimate poster board figure for narcissists. In Isaiah 14.12-14, the boastful, emphatic statements of Lucifer mark four profoundly prideful declarations. Number one, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Number two, I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Number three, I will ascend above the height of the clouds. Number four, I will be like the Most High. This language goes far beyond the king of Babylon himself a type of Satan, full of pride. The same is true in Ezekiel chapter 28, where the language quickly moves beyond the king of Tyre to Satan himself. The Holy Scriptures indirectly address Satan, as in Genesis 3.14, where God indirectly addresses Satan as the serpent, or in Matthew 16.23, where Jesus indirectly addresses Satan when he speaks to Peter. In Ezekiel 28.11 and 12, we read this. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, 
Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Comment. Without question, the prince or king of Tyrus displayed all the same character qualities as Lucifer himself. The king of Tyrus also was prideful, self-loving, cunning, deceptive, a liar, etc. In all probability, he was also handsome and intelligent. All of these and more were true of that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Follow the narrative of Ezekiel 28 and confirm that the unfallen state of Satan is compared to the king of Tyrus. Pay close attention to what connects Ezekiel 28 to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. Workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Note these facts. The person addressed had been in Eden, the garden of God. Only three personages were in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, the woman Eve, and the man Adam. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that Ezekiel is referring to that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. The precious stones symbolize the beauty and adornment of the chief archangel, Lucifer or Satan, in his unfallen state before he declared war in heaven. The tabrets and pipes are musical instruments, indicating that in his unfallen state, Satan employed great musical skill in leading angels in worshiping God around the throne. Consider how in his fallen state, Satan continues to use music as one of the primary mediums through which he deceives, manipulates, and promotes satanic principles through corrupted musical skills. Throughout history, music has been used as a medium for both good and evil. Ezekiel 28.14 reads, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Again, consider these points. In his unfallen state, Satan was created as a cherub, an angel. In his case, the chief archangel. Both the cherubims and the seraphims were angels of an exalted order who defended the holiness of God. They are referenced in Isaiah 6, 1 through 2, <clears throat> Ezekiel 1, verse 5 through 28, and Genesis 3, 24, as well as elsewhere. In his pre-fallen state, this anointed cherub may have had access to high and holy places. After all, he was on the holy mountain of God, indicating that he may have been on Mount Sinai and perhaps at other significant locations. Ezekiel 28.15 reads, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. In his unfallen state, Satan was a created being. He was created as a cherubim. He was perfect and sinless before his fall. Iniquity was found in this chief archangel, as is proven when he fell from his first powerful and glorious estate, when he rebelled against God, and drew a third of the angelic hosts with him, as previously referenced in Revelation 12, verse 3 and 4. Ezekiel 28, verse 16. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned, 
Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. This chief archangel, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, had committed his terrible rebellion against Jehovah himself. 1 Samuel 15.23 declares, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We know that Satan is the father of the occult and everything associated with devils, demons, and evil spirits of darkness. Because of his sin and iniquity, this anointed cherub was cast out of the mountain of God, a place of honor, holiness, and dignity. Like the angels that sinned and fell from glory, Satan lost his first estate and was cast from his exalted position with Jehovah. Ezekiel 28 verse 17 Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. In his unfallen state, Lucifer was adorned with tremendous angelic beauty and held a position of authority over all other angels. In this exalted position, he became consumed with pride and rebelled against God. Thus, he followed the path to self-destruction. Daniel 5.20 describes King Nebuchadnezzar, whose heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. In the same manner, Lucifer's heart was exalted. He was hardened in pride, and then he was cast from glory. He lost his position and power. This, then, is the point we need to emphasize. Sin entered the universe when the chief archangel Lucifer, the prince of this world, that old serpent, who sometimes is called Satan or the devil, rebelled against God. In his rebellion, he enticed a third of angelic hosts to follow him. Satan continues to be the grand organizer of the forces of darkness, always trying to overthrow the kingdom of God. He stands in complete opposition to God, his law, moral standards, and everything associated with the kingdom of God. So when did sin enter the race of Adam? Let's consider this carefully. What motive did the fallen chief archangel have for invading God's perfect world? First, Lucifer had grievously sinned and rebelled against God and then proceeded to corrupt a third of the angelic host. Having been cast down from heaven, he was ready to try to seize the dominion of the earth that our sovereign God had originally given to Adam kind. In order to gain dominion over the earth, Satan had to unseat Adam from his sinless state of obedience and faithfulness to God. Satan had to use their pride to deceive Adam and Eve into disobeying and dishonoring God and the authority of his word. Satan needed to seize the dominion of the earth, so he employed a clever strategy. What was that strategy? In their unfallen state, Adam and Eve remained sinless and enjoyed conditional immortality. Death had no power over them. Satan would need to deceive and entice them into sin in order for them to lose their conditional immortality. If Satan could succeed, he would thus engineer the fall of Adam man and in so doing gain the dominion of the earth. Having been created immortal like all other angels, the chief archangel could not die. Death has no power over them. If Adam sinned, however, Satan could exercise his immortality and immunity from death to seize the dominion and control of the earth. How did sin enter the race of Adam? Adam and Eve were created sinless and with a bias only to do good. They did not know evil. They were the only people in the Garden of Eden. 
both were sinless and created in a state of perfection with conditional immortality. How then could the temptation to rebel against their creator come? This temptation could come only with the entrance of a third party into the garden. The serpent came in Genesis 3.1. He was on earth inside the garden when he entertained a dialogue with Eve, asking her an exceedingly important question that planted doubt in her mind. Before we seek to unravel the events of Genesis 3 inside the Garden of Eden, review God's instruction to Adam in Genesis 2, 15 and 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Jehovah God assigned Adam the task of mapping and taking dominion of the Garden of Eden, a vast region of the earth that encompassed four significant rivers. Taking dominion of this domain was a tremendous feat for Adam. God told Adam that he was privileged to freely eat from every tree of the garden, but with one significant restriction. God forbade Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God promised Adam that in the day that he disobeyed this command, he would die. Adam knew precisely that eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil would cost him dearly. He would lose his conditional immortality and die. And in dying, he would forfeit his dominion of the earth. Satan knew the tremendous challenge that Adam faced in maintaining his absolute obedience to God's command. He also knew that if Adam could be tempted to sin and rebel against God, he would lose his conditional immortality and come under the sentence of, and the power of death. This would give Satan the opportunity to use his power over death to seize the dominion of the earth and get his firstborn issue into the earth before Adam could father a son. What a conniving devil! Genesis 3.1 serves as an excellent beginning point for understanding how sin entered the race of Adam kind. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The use of the serpent to refer to the archangel Satan was previously explained in E. W. Bollinger's Companion Bible, Appendix 19, which contains an interesting account of this from St. Paul's inspired words from 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, which are germane to understanding how Satan is indirectly represented as the Satan. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. The serpent in Genesis 3.1 indirectly speaks of Satan, appearing as an angel of light, having a dialogue with the woman Eve. By addressing Eve with this question, the serpent followed the strategy of satanic warfare. The serpent sought to undermine belief in the absolute being of God. If God is sovereign and instructed Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the matter should have been closed. But what if the serpent were able to plant doubt and advance the idea that God may not hold complete supremacy? By asking this question, the serpent attempted to usurp the authority of Almighty God. The serpent's first step was to separate Eve 
from the reality of God's absolute supremacy by planting doubt in her mind. A question often works well to plant doubt and let a new idea to take root. <clears throat> Genesis 3.2 reads, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Eve's response indicates complete knowledge of God's command not to eat of the forbidden tree. The fact that she did not quote precisely the exact words of God may not be that important, because all that she knew she had learned from Adam, her husband. He might have so impressed Eve that she thought that it would be improper to touch the tree. In a real sense, partaking of the fruit of this forbidden tree did indeed mean immediate spiritual and eventually physical death as well. The word touch is an interesting study. Check the Hebrew derivation of touch and then connect touch to Genesis 26, Ruth 2.9, Proverbs 6.29, 1 Corinthians 7.1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 6.17 for potential understanding of its use in Genesis 3.3. We can only assume that Eve had honest intent to incorporate the word touch in her statement for she absolutely did correctly understand that the tree was forbidden. Genesis 3.4 reads, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. This declaration was the serpent's opportunity to initiate strategic step number two. His goal was to separate the woman from the authority of God's word. God had indeed told Adam this, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This immediately brought into question the very word of God. Was God's word absolute and true? Any possibility that God's word was less than absolute truth would introduce another path to knowledge. More than this, it would clearly indicate that God's word was no more authoritative than anything the serpent said. The creature's opinion would be elevated to the level of God's opinion. God and his word are absolute truth, and the only reality by which Adam-kind creatures can live. If God is sovereign, his word is absolute truth. Religious humanism denies the reality of God and the absolute truth. This is at the very core of the humanist mind. The root of every false religion, ideology, God, and philosophy is grounded in the denial of God and his absolute truth. If God's word is not absolute and absolutely true, then truth cannot be known. The doctrine of relativism allows everyone to define truth by whatever standard one wishes. Thus, absolute truth is not possible. Truth is relative. Whatever an individual wants it to be, this issue of absolute truth is at the heart of the battle for the souls of men and the real estate of this earth today. It was that the serpent waged in the Garden of Eden, and it remains the core issue in the battle for God and his absolute word of truth in the modern world. Genesis 3.5 reads, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. With this declaration, the serpent moved in for the kill shot. The serpent did not deny the existence of God, but attacked the limitations God put on Adam in forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent clearly understood that in his pre-fallen state, Adam had no consciousness of evil. Evil itself has no being. Just as light is the complete absence of darkness, 
so is good the total absence of evil. The serpent knew that God deliberately designed Adam and Eve to have no conscious knowledge of evil. They would retain their innocence as long as they obeyed God's command to refrain from eating of the forbidden tree. The serpent insisted that to eat of the forbidden tree was the key for the man and woman to be as gods, possessing the knowledge of good and evil. The ultimate goal of the serpent was to move Adam and Eve from their trust in God's absolute truth to a condition where they could attain ultimate knowledge and become gods, defining good and evil, right and wrong, by their own standard. If truth were relative, then everyone could become his own god, determining good and evil, right and wrong. Every man's moral code would be relative to his definition of truth. In such a world, confusion, disorder, and delusional thinking would become the norm. Any denial of God as being the absolute judge of good and evil, right and wrong, would be the path to self-destruction and personal and national suicide. Genesis 3.6 reads, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also her husband with her, and he did eat. The serpent beguiled the man, and she ate of the forbidden tree. Having done the forbidden thing, she gave also unto her husband, and he did eat. The serpent, the great tempter, successfully enticed the woman to eat of the forbidden fruit. She in turn enticed Adam, a willing participant. 1 Timothy 2.14 confirms that Adam was not deceived. Rather, he willfully chose to disobey God and eat from the forbidden fruit that his wife had offered him. However, the woman Eve was deceived into believing that the serpent, in the form of the angel of light, was a superior being, and she was bound to listen to him. In eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and transgressed his law. Thus sin entered the world. Adam died spiritually the very day he ate from the forbidden tree. As the head of his race, Adam passed the sin nature which he attained through this fall to all his offspring. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All of Adam's descendants were rendered incapable of coming to spiritual life unless God himself quickens and awakens man to spiritual life. Adam died physically at age 930. Considering that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, Adam died within the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit. In their fallen state, Adam and Eve now had a conscious awareness of evil. Their eyes were now opened and they were ashamed of their nakedness and set about to cover their secret parts with fig leaves. They hid themselves from the presence of God and were afraid of God. Adam blamed Eve for giving him the fruit of the tree. Then Eve blamed the serpent for beguiling her. What do we see on full display? Sin nature. They became quite adept at passing the buck, as this dialogue shows. As God set about to address these alarming events in the Garden of Eden, he first called the serpent into accountability. God cursed the serpent, crawling upon his belly, and told him that he must eat of the dust of the earth all the days of his life. 
God planted eternal enmity and hatred between the serpent and the woman, and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent is destined to be bruised to bruise the heel of the woman. This occurred at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when the serpent's seed instigated the murder of Jesus. At his glorious second coming, the serpent bruiser, Jesus Christ, will bruise the serpent. Romans 16.20 reads, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Secondly, having pronounced his judgment upon the serpent, God commenced to issue a threefold judgment to the woman. Number one, the woman would have multiplied conception necessary in this tragic fallen world. Number two, motherhood would be linked to sorrow and pain unknown before the fall. Number three, in the disordered fallen world, the woman would desire to be independent of her husband, outside his leadership, and not submissive to his leadership. Thirdly, God pronounced judgment upon the man in Genesis 3:17 and 19, because he hearkened unto the voice of his wife and ate from the forbidden tree. Man would suffer a fourfold judgment. Number one, the ground would be cursed. Number two, men would eat of the forbidden fruit all the days of his life. He would always struggle to subdue or control his sexual appetite. Number three, thorns and thistles would spring up in the earth, and man would eat the herb of the field with tremendous effort. Number four, man would constantly have to work by the sweat of his brow to provide food for himself and his family. Finally, at the end of their lives, men and women would die and return to the dust from which they came. Five important developments follow God's judgment upon Adam and Eve. Number one, in Genesis 3.20, Adam gave his wife the name Eve because she would be the mother of all the seed of Adam to ever live. Number two, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God covered Adam and Eve with coats made from the skins of an animal. The blood of an obviously clean animal was used to cover, atone for, their sin. Adam and Eve covered themselves with scanty fig leaves because they had grievously sinned against God. Thus, they needed both a covering for their bodies and a blood offering to atone for their sin. Number 3. Genesis 3.22 Adam and Eve, now living in full consciousness, possessed knowledge of good and evil. Understanding the horror of sin and its consequences, they desired to return to the garden and take hold of the tree of life and live in a state of celestial immortality. Alas, they could not. Adam and Eve now had to face the consequences of sin and make their way through a fallen world, where mere existence meant they had to endure tragedy and misfortunes. Beyond this was something far more sinister. Their posterity will have the potential to intentionally practice evil. Evil is intentional and has a motive. Tragedy and misfortune happen without intent or motive. In the natural world, we experience floods, fires, storms, earthquakes, tidal waves, volcanoes, and other natural disasters. Fallen men would now make error in judgment. Poor and foolish decisions, whether intentional or not, would bring about injury, suffering, and death. But malicious and wicked thoughts now course through the minds of fallen man 
and not infrequently result in hateful deeds laden with malice and destructive intent. This is one of the great tragedies of the fall of our parents, Adam and Eve, and all of creation with them. Genesis 3.23 God drove Adam from the Garden of Eden with instructions to till the ground. Adam was forced to live under the consequences of sin. Fallen man has the freedom of the will to sin, but cannot avoid the consequences of that sin. Adam and Eve, with all their future posterity, would live under the terms of the Adamic covenant in Genesis 3, 16 through 19. Number five, Genesis 3, 24. God drove Adam and Eve eastward from the garden. Then he placed cherubims, in order of angels, with flaming swords at the entrance to guard the tree of life. By grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, by scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone, the elect chosen in Jesus Christ, before the world began, will one day eat again from the tree of life, when paradise is restored and God brings his kingdom to earth. Number six, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. From Revelation 2, verse 7. Number seven, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Revelation 22, verse 14.